Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 12, verse 1, and we'll also be doing a reading from John chapter 4. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word as you're able? Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then from John chapter 4, when Jesus is having his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is Laity Sunday, like Joe mentioned earlier, which means some layperson from the church gets drafted uh, to do the sermon to give the pastors time off. So my name is Lewis Jackson. I'm one of you uh, attempting to do this, and I would like to start with a word of prayer. Almighty God, Lord, we take anything that is said, anything that is sung, anything that is done in this hour this morning, and we turn it over to you for your blessing. Lord, we know that when you pour out your blessing on our efforts, you bless and magnify them to meet the need, and we pray that you'll do that this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, it depends on your denomination. For charismatics, only one. The hands are already in the air. For Pentecostals, it takes ten. One to change the bulb, and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. For Presbyterians, none. The lights go off and on at predestined times. For Catholics, none. Candles only. For Baptists, at least 15, one to change the bulb and at least three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. (laughs) For Episcopalians, it takes three, one to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old one was. (laughs) If you're Nazarene, it takes six, one woman to change the bulb and five men to review church lighting policy. For the Lutherans, none. They don't believe in changing anything. (laughs) How many Amish? What's a light bulb? (laughs) What about for us, the Methodists? Well, it's undetermined, because whether your light bulb is bright, dull, or completely out, you are loved. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, or a tulip bulb, and it doesn't matter. And by the way, there's a church-wide lighting service next Sunday. Please bring a bulb of your choice and a covered dish. (laughs) Different denominations have different traditions and different styles, but we're all called to worship. And even in a denomination or a church like ours, there are different styles, but we're all called to worship, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. So, do we really need to take a Sunday morning to talk about worship? After all, we're here, right? We know what worship is. We showed up. 
The thing is, worship is a much broader concept than we often realize. It's more than 11 to 12 on Sunday morning. And powerful things happen when God's people worship in the way that Jesus said to do in spirit and in truth. I want to relate a few Bible stories to you. In 2 Chronicles 20, this is describing a time in the nation of Israel when it, uh, after Solomon it split into two kingdoms. One retained the title Israel, and then there was the kingdom of Judah. Each had a succession of kings and events that happened to them. And one of the kings of Judah was named Jehoshaphat. And at one point during his reign, there were three different armies that were making plans to attack Israel. And the combined strength of these three armies would have totally annihilated Israel. Well, the Bible says that one man in this group, when the kingdom had come together to discuss what they were going to do, the Spirit of God came on one man, Jehaziel, and he said to the group and to the king, you will not have to fight this battle. All you need to do is take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance that God will give you. And so the king agreed. And it says in verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah fell down in worship before the Lord. The next day they go out to battle, singing hymns of praise as they're marching to the battle to take on what should be impossible odds. And when they get there, they find that the three armies had destroyed each other. They didn't have to lift a sword. They didn't have to do anything to fight. Their circumstances changed when they chose to worship. Repeat after me. When God's people worship, God's power is unleashed. My Sunday school class is used to having to do that. You may not, but thank you for going along with it. Because it's true. When God's people worship, God's power is unleashed. Fast forward to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. About 100 believers were together in one place, as Jesus had told them to do. Jesus had, had been resurrected from the dead. He appeared to them off and on for 40 days, and then he was taken up into heaven. Ten days later, they didn't know what was going to happen next, but they chose to come together, and they chose to worship. And in the midst of that worship, the Holy Spirit came, and the church was born. And 3,000 new believers were converted that day. Their circumstances changed when they chose to worship. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have been going around doing ministry preaching, teaching, healing, doing things in the name of Jesus. And they earn the, the ire of the local authorities. And as a result, they got beaten illegally, thrown in prison illegally. They were put in chains. Their feet were in the stocks. And this is where they found themselves. They were doing God's work, and yet they found themselves in pain, humiliated, in chains in prison. Verse 25 says at that point, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And immediately what happened, there was a violent earthquake, the doors of the prison flew open, their chains came off, and right after that, the jailer and his family all received Christ, they got saved. 
Paul and Silas received an official apology. They were let out of prison and let go. And 2,000 years later, we're still learning from their example and from their story. Their circumstances changed when they chose to worship. Repeat after me one more time. When God's people worship, God's power is unleashed. Now, all of these stories illustrate that there is power when God's people worship together. When we come together in the corporate sense, whether it's two or a whole nation, powerful things happen when we worship together. But what's going on in the individual when worship is taking place? There are three parts of our being. We have a body that is our physical sense. We have a soul which consists of our mind, our will, and our emotions. I think, I want, I feel. That part of us is our soul. And then we have a spirit. And the spirit is that part of us that was designed to communicate, to commune with God. And this three-part design makes us almost unique. God has three parts to his character as well. Soul, spirit, he came in an earthly body. Now, who has a dog? Several people. Your dog has a body. Your dog has a soul. Your dog can decide what he or she wants, whether they choose to obey or not. They have a mind, a will. Sometimes they're happy. Sometimes they're sad. But they don't have a spirit. Angels have a spirit and a soul, but they don't have a body a physical body. When we're told that we were created in God's image, it's because we have these three parts to our character and our spirit is what longs to commune and to worship with God's spirit. And when that's happening, sometimes our soul and even our body can get into the act also, but ultimately it's our spirit that worships with God. And so when Jesus says his worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth, that's the spirit part. We were singing earlier, tune my heart to sing thy grace. You know, whether you're tuning an instrument or tuning a radio station to get it to the right place, that's what's happening when we're worshiping. We're tuning in to God's frequency so that we can hear from him, so that we can Enjoy what it is that he's giving to us through that process. So what about the truth part? How do we worship in truth? Worshiping in truth means doing that, communing with the Spirit of God in a way that's real and authentic for you, not just going through the motions, but actually having a moment of communion with the Almighty. It's easy for us to get confused, though, and substitute other things for what we think worship is. Many years ago, there was a very well-known, famous pastor of the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, New York. His name was Henry Ward Beecher. He was a destination preacher, I guess you could say. People would come from other cities, other churches, just to hear him preach, kind of the way people do maybe with Joel Osteen or Charles Stanley today. He had such an amazing reputation that on any given Sunday, there were a lot of people there from other places. Well, one Sunday, he had asked his brother Thomas to preach for him, possibly on Laity Sunday, I don't know. 
But when Thomas stood to preach, some people began to move towards the doors. Thomas realized that they were disappointed because they had come to hear his brother Henry preach. So Thomas raised his hand to call for silence and announced, All who came here this morning to worship Henry Ward Beecher may leave now. All who came to worship the Lord may remain. And too many times we go to church not because God is there and we're seeking him because we know God is everywhere, of course, but because we like a certain preacher or the praise band or the choir or that particular style of worship. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying good preaching and good music. There's nothing wrong with having a preference for your style of worship, whether it's in a large church or a smaller congregation, contemporary, traditional, whatever. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but you have to realize none of those are worship. Those are aids to worship, but they're not worship itself. Not too many years ago, we had a group of people in this church who were discontent with a variety of things. And one of the things I heard many of them say was, I'm not getting fed. Many of them are no longer here. And some have gone on to other churches, some to more than one other church over the years. They didn't get it. Worship is not about what you receive for yourself when you are in church. It's not what you receive from the experience. It's about what you give to God in that experience and in that moment. Now, God will make sure that if you are worshiping in spirit and truth, if you are worshiping in the way that he commands, you will be blessed by that experience. It's not, what about, it's not about what we get from worship. It's about what we give through our worship. And like I said, style preferences are okay, but sometimes we can, we can make the mistake of passing judgment on other styles. For example, there are some people who may prefer a more contemporary style who might look at a worship service like this and say, I don't see how the Holy Spirit can move in that with hymns and an organ and all that liturgy. And meanwhile, people from a traditional style may look at contemporary and say they're so casual about the dress code and the order of worship, they're probably casual about their relationship with God also. The problem is things like that, not only are they wrong, but they distract us from what worship really is. We all have a way in which we were created, a style that appeals to us, aids of worship that help us get there better, God calls some people to worship with their hands in in the air and some people with their hands in their pockets, and neither one is allowed to judge the other. And we can't be dependent on our style preferences. If we are saying, I can't worship unless circumstances are just like this, then we've missed the point of what worship really is. What if Paul and Silas had said that? They would have died in prison, possibly. But because they chose to worship, even given the circumstances they were in, God moved in a mighty way to honor that worship that they did. I want to read the verse from Romans 12 one more time. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and that part's important, that's why we worship. It's because of what God did for us. Worship is our response. 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is when we offer ourselves to God, and it can take all kinds of different forms. What we're doing this morning, corporate worship, worshiping as a group, is very important, and it's a big part of that. We're supposed to be getting something from this experience that empowers us. We don't come here seeking that. We come here to give to God, but God pours it on us while we're here so that we have something to take out beyond that. So through singing and praying and proclaiming the word, liturgy, participating in sacraments together like communion, praying together, hearing testimonies, God does things through us as a group when we worship together that empower all of us and empower the church's ability to do what we're supposed to do. Coming together is important. And like we said before, God's power is unleashed when his people worship together. Have you seen God's power unleashed in this church body from our worship together? I have. I've seen people with cancer do far better than they ever should have done. I've seen people healed. And probably the most striking example of that that I've seen so far happened Gosh, 17, 18 years ago, Kathy Wilson here this morning was this close to dying from hepatitis. And our pastor at the time had the whole church fast and pray on her behalf. She got better. She's she's got more energy than all the rest of us combined at this point, leading the missions efforts of our church. The power of God was unleashed when this church came together to pray for Kathy. But it also happens in all kinds of other ways. Definitely in the corporate sense is important, but in the individual sense, there are all kinds of things that you can do that are worship. When we pray, are we submitting? Are we surrendering when we pray? Well, yes, we are. We're submitting our time. We're submitting our thoughts. We're taking time to put our thoughts on the thoughts of God when we're in the middle of prayer. If we're praying for someone else, if we're interceding, then we're giving that to God. We're putting aside self to pray for someone else, and God honors that. What about just listening to God? That's supposed to be part of prayer, but too many times our prayers are just more about us talking about what we want, what we need. Listening to God is an act of worship. Wherever you are, your car, your home, your backyard, you're giving your time, you're sacrificing your agenda, again, to put your focus on Him. Listening to music may help, But again, that's an aid to worship, not worship itself. What about giving? Giving our tithes, our offerings, giving monetarily. Absolutely, that's worship. When that plate came by, if you put something in it today, that was an act of worship on your part. You're surrendering your money, possessions that you could have, but choose not to so that you can give to God's work here. That's worship service. Oh, that's huge. We spent a whole sermon on that at 8.30 about the blessings that come through service, whether it's to others outside of this church or even just in church. Acts of service are acts of worship. What the ushers do, what the choir has done, what the acolytes and crucifers did this morning, you guys were worshiping 
by your willingness to be here and to serve God through what you did. Um, when Christy came forward to do the children's ministry, which means she's actually the bravest person in the church today. That's not an easy job. It's a total wild card when you, you know, when you ask a question down here. That's her worshiping. That kind of service. Who came to Stop Hunger Now a few weeks ago when we did that over in the parish hall? Man, that was beautiful. This body of Christ coming together to serve, we were involved in worship that evening, and it was powerful. You know, all, all walks of life, all ages, um, it was great. And it doesn't even have to be all that complicated. Just writing a note of encouragement is worship. Sending a text, calling someone to encourage them, that's worship. It happens there. Bible study, Bible is God's love letter to us. When you spend your time in it, he loves that. You're communing with him, and that's worship too. Uh, fasting, ooh, that's powerful. What fasting is all about, yeah, it's giving up something um, for a period of time as worship to God, but what you're actually doing, it's an opportunity for the physical to come under the authority of the spiritual in your body. And it's powerful. The greater the denial of self that happens, the more powerful that worship experience becomes. And just acknowledging God as you're driving, as you're walking, just seeing God in a, in a sunset, thanking him for what he created, that's worship. For that moment, you're putting your thoughts on him instead of yourself. And it becomes worship in that moment, thanking him, recognizing his hand around you. Like I said before, God designed each one of us differently. And when we worship in spirit and truth, we're doing it in the way that moves our spirit into communion with his. Now, some of the aids to worship may be the setting for you. You may feel closer to God in your home. You may feel closer to God in the woods, by a lake, on the beach. Um, some people do different things to enhance their experience of worship. You may play music. Years ago, I heard Joanne Kinraid talk about how when she does her quiet time at her house, she lights a candle. We light candles here to signify the presence of God in our midst, and she does that in her quiet time at home. Some of the things that draw you into worship may be the specific worship practices, though. Some of these things I've just been describing. For example, if music draws you into worship, listen to music. If, if you experience joy in giving, then that means God has designed you to receive joy from that particular aspect. And it's clear that with giving, God has, has gifted some people financially because they derive great joy from giving. And very commonly, those people will get words back from, from the fruit of what they gave, what it went to, and how people were blessed by what they do. And it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle. God arranges it so that that person who is designed to worship and to receive joy through giving gets built up in that way. They get blessed in that manner. What you need to do is understand how God designed you to worship. 
for me, when I've gradually figured out, I always felt like I, was, I had to have a daily quiet time. I've made several efforts throughout my life to make that happen. And honestly, it just hasn't worked for me. I confessed this to my Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago. I'll confess it to you. I've tried that, and it just doesn't happen. But I like to run, and I have found that when I'm out running, that's when I feel God's presence the most. That's when God draws me into prayer the most. That's when God's, God puts stuff on my heart. And it's just neat how that happens for me because in the neighborhood where I run, I run past the homes of a lot of people I know. Joe, who was up here beside me earlier, I run past Joe in Peggy's house. And I'll pray, thank you, God, for my brother Joe and my sister Peggy. Thank you for the godly leadership that they bring to our church and to their family. Bless them and give them your favor. All of a sudden, I forget that it hurts to run. Because sometimes. Because I uh, put my mind on, on things of God at that moment. And it blessed me. It's a blessing to be able to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's how God energizes me. During the times that I've been injured and I couldn't run, it took a while to realize that my prayer life and my, my walk with God seemed to ebb a little bit and didn't, didn't have the same strength that it, that it did at other times. And it took me a while to realize it's because you're not running. And so I had to do other things. I've, um, now when I'm preparing to teach Sunday school or for something like this, I do what Joanne does. I light a candle, sit down early in the morning while the house is still dark and quiet, and that's when I have some of my most powerful times with God also. You know, the thing is, you have to figure out how God designed you to worship. What brings you joy? And move in that direction. And then sometimes worship comes as the authentic response of whatever condition your heart is in at that moment. And sometimes that may be incredible joy, but many times it may be something else. Your heart may be completely broken. There may be anger over something that's happened to you or someone you love. You may have anguish. You may have pain. You may have despair. And your heart just cries out to God. And it may be in a way that doesn't really feel like worship, because it's not happy praise at that moment. But it's still worship because you're choosing to dialogue with God even to work out the difficult stuff that you're going through at that moment. One thing we sang this morning that we sing most mornings that many of you have sung hundreds, maybe thousands of times over the course of your lifetime is the doxology. And many people don't know where that started. Several centuries ago, Bishop Thomas Ken was a minister in England, a bishop in England. And it was right after London had had two devastating fires that burned large portions of the city, that killed large portions of the population, and the bubonic plague. He had seen people in all kinds of pain, in all kinds of hurt. And as he was in a position to minister to them, after doing that, seeing all of these difficult times, all of this pain, all of this suffering, as he dealt with that, and as God dealt with him, he was able to write these words that we sang. Praise God 
from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's where those words come from. Out of that moment of pain and all that difficulty, God was able to work something beautiful in a way that only he could. Back earlier at the beginning of this year, our family did a a staycation, sort of overnight trip to Atlanta where we spent the night up there. Country comes to town. You know, Coweta goes to Fulton. We saw a show at the Fox, spent the night at a hotel. The next morning we went to the King Center, saw that, and then took the new streetcar to the Ferris wheel, stopped at the Auburn Market on the way back, got a bunch of vegetables and other things there, and then headed back to the car, to, to my truck. And we had our overnight stuff with us. We had to move it all to the bed of the truck, covered bed, um, so that we could make room for the stuff we had bought at the street market. Uh, There was a parade going on. There were two cars waiting for me to pull out. So I got the stuff in the back as fast as I could, got back in and pulled out so those two cars could fight over our spot. and didn't see how that came out. But we headed out and headed back home. And as we were coming down the connector, northbound traffic was bumper to bumper. And I remember thinking, "Ah, sure, I'm glad I'm not in that. We get all the way home, get into the driveway, get out of the car, go around to the back of the truck. And I left the tailgate down. Yeah, that's, that's what the four of us did at that moment also. And we did a quick inventory of what was in there, and only one bag was gone. It was the bag of my nine-year-old, Abby. And the realization came on us all at the same time. And she looked up at me, and she said, Nene's gone. Now, for those of you who have had kids or were kids, kids often have this special thing that's special to them, that they have with them pretty much everywhere they go, for sleepovers, grandma's house, they take it everywhere on trips. Well, Nene was that for Abby. It's just one of those little blankets with a teddy bear head in the center of it, about that big. But Nene is special. Nene had been left at a couple other places in the past, but we always knew where it was, and so it was never long before Nene came back to us. And uh, you guys know the kind of thing I'm talking about with kids. Some of you still have one, and I know you do. (laughs) But as Abby saw what had happened, my heart sank because I realized this is all on me. It was my carelessness that caused this to happen, and I, I knew right away the pain that she was experiencing, and the tears immediately started coming. She walked around to the front of the truck so the rest of us wouldn't see her, and I I followed her around and said, Abby, I am so sorry. And in the midst of her pain, she looks up at me and she says, It's okay, Daddy. I know you didn't mean to. And then she continued to cry over it because her heart was broken. But in that moment of pain, she she chose to show mercy and forgiveness to me which speaks to the condition of her heart. I made plans to retrace the steps, go back up to to the King Center if I had to, through all that traffic I had seen, because what else was I going to do? I had to. You know, where we were, it's not like someone would find it and turn it in anywhere. So we got the rest of the stuff unpacked. They all went inside. 
And before I left, I went inside so I could tell him bye before I headed back to Atlanta. And Abby was up in her room, but even upstairs with doors closed, we could hear her sobbing because she was in so much pain. So I went up there and I wanted to pray for her, but I guess because I just felt so much guilt in that moment, I was worried that if I offered to pray, is that just going to sound trite? I know you're in pain. Let's just pray about it and then you should be fine. I didn't, you know, you can't say that. And I told her I was going to go up and I was going to look as hard as I could to find Nene for her. Um, And as I was getting ready to leave the room, she looked up at me, tears coming out of her eyes, and she said, I guess all we can do is pray. And I said, yes, sweetheart, you're right. And at that moment, her spiritual father couldn't man up and do the praying that really needed to be done, so she asked for it. And that was all I needed, and we prayed about it. And then I left, and um, I found out right after that that Megan, her, her 12-year-old sister, as soon as I left, she went up and put her arm around Abby and prayed for her, which was incredible because, honestly, the previous 24 hours they had been driving us nuts um, doing the, you know, the thing with each other. But Megan went up and prayed for her, too. And I left, and I headed to Atlanta. But one mile out of the subdivision... There was Abby's bag in the ditch. And in the middle, there was Nene. <laughs> Thanks be to God. And the thing about it is, you know, what Abby showed me is that even in the midst of our pain, no matter what pain we're going through, if the authentic response is to cry out to God, He will bless that and He'll honor that because we're worshiping him. Our spirit at that moment is communing with his spirit, whether it's in the midst of great joy or tremendous pain. And that's what we're called to do, to worship in spirit and in truth. God has designed worship to bless his people. And it doesn't just end at 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings. It's a lifestyle. It's a pattern of behavior. It's a pattern of walking with God, surrendered and submitted to his spirit in every aspect of our life. 